welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Jake Eagle, who, after 25 years as a psychotherapist, now refers to himself as a metatherapist, helping people to discover what comes after therapy. Welcome. Thanks, Tom. Um, Jake, welcome to our show. I'm extremely excited to have um, Jake on the show. He's a mental health professional who practiced um, psychotherapy in Santa Fe, New Mexico for over 25 years. He now lives in Hawaii in a Santa Fe process called Live Conscious. You can find him at liveconscious.com. He has a very unique approach. I'm very excited to hear about myself. And Jake, welcome to our show. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this. Could you describe your current situation a little bit for us? Yeah, uh, current situation. So I'll give you a little bit of background. I was in Santa Fe for 25 years in private practice, uh, mostly doing therapy, individual and couples therapy, mostly focused on helping people uh, empower themselves and develop better skills for relating in relationships. And um, I did that work for about 10 years, at which point in time, my wife and I met a, a couple who at the time were elderly. Uh, their names are John and Joyce Weir. And they were 85 when we met them. And they were thinking of retiring. And they had kind of given up on the idea that they were going to find anybody to carry their work forward. And it was just very serendipitous. We, we met them. Things really clicked. I had a great rapport with John. And my wife, Hannah, had a great rapport with Joyce. And we ended up going to the last retreat that they ever put on uh, were completely enamored with their work as well as the way they moved through the world. At 85, they were vibrant. They were um, remarkably present. They were healthy in every way. They were still working. They were traveling around the country in an old Winnebago, a 24-foot Winnebago, and they were putting on these workshops for people. But they'd kind of come to the end of, of, of continuing to do the work. So we go to their last program and it's really transformative experience. And I, it really opened my eyes to what was lacking in the way that I was working with people. And I would suggest the way that most therapists work with people. And I'll, I'll, we'll go into that in a few minutes, but we then ended up, Hannah and I then ended up basically studying with them for six years. Oh, you did? We, we did. We lived in New Mexico, but they were in uh, San Luis Obispo, California. We would fly out there for three, four days at a time, hang out with them in a hot tub and take in everything we could learn. And right. then slowly we started, we started conducting the kind of work that they were doing. We started putting on these retreats. They actually called them labs related to the word a laboratory. Okay. A place, place where people would go to experiment. Okay. And, um, and we've been doing it ever since. So that's, um, you know, over 20 years ago. And it's become the primary focus of our work. What is the essence of what they did and what you now do that's unique and different? So at the heart of this, and I think you'll appreciate it because of the work you do helping people with pain, whether we're in physical pain or emotional pain, the chances are that once we fall into or put ourselves in that position, 
we experience ourselves somewhat as victims. Right. So we either think the pain is something that is inhibiting us, is causing us suffering, or we think our relationship is causing us suffering, or the world is causing us suffering. And as we, the language I would use is as we victimize ourselves, we also exacerbate the problem and we struggle more and more. And the problem with so much uh, therapy, as well as many therapeutic approaches dealing with pain, is the way we talk about it. We talk about it as if it's something separate from ourselves, it's outside of us, and it's doing this to us. So we're very disempowered around a lot right. of our suffering, right? Right. What John did is he created, it's kind of extraordinary really, he created a different way of using language. Uh, we, we now refer to it as perception language. And the basis of it is that when I talk to you or I talk in my head to myself, I'm realizing and remembering that I am making up meaning of whatever it is that's happening in the world. I'm making okay. up meaning and I'm interpreting it, but right. I'm the one making up the meaning, right? Right. Now, if I realize that, then I begin to empower myself. So instead of saying, let, let's say that uh, you and I have some kind of altercation and I, I, I say, uh, you, you made me angry. Right. I, I'm, I'm transferring the power to you. You are the person who made me angry. You're doing this to me. It's as if right. you are running my nervous system. Right. And what John did, there's, there's about six rules to uh, this perception language. And the first one is that we, we come back and we take responsibility for our feelings. So I would say, I'm angering myself. Right. Exactly. Right. And mm. I, I don't know if you feel it, but if you use this language, and it has to be more than intellectual, it has to really be where we embrace the language. But as soon as we embrace the language, we start to empower ourselves because I am the one making myself feel however it is that I feel. Yeah, this is fascinating because as you know, you're combining sort of somatic work with cognitive behavioral therapy, where your thoughts really do create a chemical reaction in the body. And so again, the thoughts aren't the problem, it's that reaction to the thoughts that create the problem. And the thing about anger that's so hard, this is the hardest part of my personal journey, is that let's say, let's say you upset me. And so I understand intellectually that, okay, I'm upset. I allowed myself to be upset. It's my issue. It has nothing to do with you, but it still feels like you, <laughs> right? It, it that's, that's the hardest part. Right. It feels like you, but I, I know it intellectually it's not you, but it's me. It's hard. It's hard. And the part of the reason it's hard is because we've grown up in this paradigm where we really do see other people as separate and we see the world as separate and we see it as acting upon us. And as long as we frame things in that way, we have this underlying belief that there's a perpetrator and a victim. You're the perpetrator, right. I'm the victim. It may be very subtle, but right. I still perceive you as somebody who's doing something to me. Now, if you change your language, David, and all the time you started to, I, I call it verbing, you're verbing yourself. When I, when I say I'm angering myself or I'm frustrating myself or I'm delighting myself, I'm thrilling myself. When I say these things, I'm verbing, I'm, I'm right. putting my emotions, A, in my hands, and B, I'm putting them in motion, which means they're temporary. I like that. I mean, I, I use the word programming, but I like the word verbing a lot. I think that makes a lot of sense. 
And it's a word that's, um, when I lived in, in New Mexico, I spent some time on the Hopi reservation. And okay. in the Hopi language, almost everything is a verb. Okay. So for example, a chair, a chair is a slow moving, very slow moving verb, right? <laughs> okay, interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, it's also fascinating about this because <clears throat> I want to say about three things at once here, but Number one, the neuroscience research out of Boston, this book out called How Emotions Are Made by Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. And she's one of the leading neuroscience researchers in the world. And what they have shown is that concepts and thoughts become programmed in your brain the same way as this computer or chair or table does. That programming is as concrete as this table is. And so that's why people create make such big decisions on idealism and politics and whatever, because that becomes a reality. When I wrote my first two books, I said, look, thoughts are real because they carry chemical reactions in their body, but they're not reality. That's not true. If you look at our neuroscience work, thoughts are your version of reality. And what you're doing, you're changing the filter. So your thoughts come in, your, now your perception is coming into a different filter, but it also creates structural changes in your brain. You're, you're, change, you're physically changing your brain, changing structure. And so the idea of changing language like that, I think is extremely interesting. And I think what I like about what you're doing is that, okay, you can't make me angry, I'm allowing it. But by consistently changing the language, you, you, you are actually creating a different reality. Exactly, yeah. And what, 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 going back to what you're saying, there's the stimulus and then there will eventually be a response. But before right. you get to the response, the experience goes through your filters. And right. then what you, what you create is what John Weir called, you create a percept. It's not reality. It's simply your version of reality. And he called right. it the percept screen. And right. what he taught people was that we're always we're always responding to the percept screen. We're not responding to reality. Correct. Absolutely. Right. <clears throat> right. So it's your version of reality, which is yours alone. That's it. Now, do you think if the planet Earth understood that each person <clears throat> has their own version of reality that's valid through their eyes, but it's not real reality, we probably can solve problems a lot easier. Yeah, I'd say one thing's missing. You'd have to help people develop greater maturity <clears throat> along with that understanding. Right, exactly. Right. right. And you mentioned there are six different concepts. You mentioned one. What are some of the other concepts that he put out there that are interesting or helpful? Well, what, one of the others that is just remarkably valuable, uh, particularly for couples, but it's useful for anybody, is the idea of using language in the present tense. What that means is that you return to now and you talk about what's happening right now in this very moment. So okay. again, if you and I had a, a, a miscommunication about something a couple of weeks ago, um, you, you loaned me your car and I told you I would return it and I didn't. And so now you're telling me that you're unhappy about that. We could go back and talk about what happened two weeks ago and we could argue, you could tell me what you remember and I could tell you what I remember. But the idea of returning to now is what do you need right now? I mean, right now in this very moment, what can I do for you? And that's very productive as compared to us arguing about how it happened, why it happened or what it means. Right. I now just want to know what, what, what do you need right now? What can I do for you? Well, okay. and if you think about it, we spend all this 
I think, spend an awful lot of energy talking about what happened two weeks ago, and you're really wasting the present, aren't you? Because you can't solve the past. Not only that, yeah, exactly. Right. So, no, I think that's phenomenal. And I'm assuming that gets some pretty quick results. Well, they're immediate. But how do you get people to, that's a habit, though. That's a tough habit to break. And do you have techniques to do to actually get people into this different verbiage or actually doing stuff like this? So two things in a, in a, in a therapeutic environment, I would basically be coaching people to interrupt their story, which is a very powerful thing to do because the story is just recreating the same neural uh, pathways. So I want to interrupt the story and then I want to bring people into the present moment. So I, I, I stop people and ask them to look around where, where are you right now? What okay. color are the walls? What time of day is it? It's not two weeks ago on a Thursday night when you and your wife were arguing. It's, it's today. It's Monday morning. And what is it that you want right now in this very moment? Are you looking for an apology? Are you looking? What, do you, what is it you need? Is it a new agreement about how you're going to move going forward? Right. And you, can tell, you can tell that if people step into this, they immediately, again, they empower themselves because they're asking for what they want instead of complaining about what either they didn't get or what they got and didn't want. Well, that's fascinating also. I'm not sure you've seen this part of my doc project, but one of the rules that we learned at our workshops that my wife and I put on together, we have some parallels there, is that one of the absolute rules was that you could not complain and you could not discuss your pain, could not do it. So because again, your attention's on the problem, not the solution. So again, you're yeah. reinforcing those neurological circuits and, and, and it's a big problem. So um, it's fascinating that you just, you, you can't, and there's also some type of thing, if you really understand the past well enough, you're gonna solve the present and all you're doing is actually reinforcing the past. You actually make it worse, especially in the world, world of chronic pain, whereas nobody gets better without forgiveness. You gotta let go. Where, where's, some of, where's some of the other concepts that you work with? These are all fantastic. Well, I think the most foundational one, and in some ways it's a little harder to get, the most foundational one is that John said, you eliminate praise and blame. And people pretty quickly grok the idea of eliminating blame. People don't like judgment. They don't want to be blamed. People have a harder time understanding why you would eliminate praise. But what John said is that they're two sides of the same coin. So if, if you're praising me and that's how I get my sense of feeling, feeling good about myself, then again, you have a lot of power. You're running my nervous system. Right. And so, right. And, and, and the other part of it is that you can take that away at any time. You can stop praising me. Right. And so my interactions with you actually stimulate a little bit of the threat circuitry. And now my orientation is, how do I keep David praising me? What do I have to do to satisfy you? What do I have to do to make you think well of me? I immediately feel myself a little on edge when I start thinking that way. Right. And then, and then the other part of it is, John was saying, um, if you lived another person's life, if you had their parents and their history and their traumas and their education, you would do exactly what they do. People do make sense. It's just we don't understand how they make sense. Right. Just in the context of their life, of course, everything you do in the context of your life makes sense, but you don't know their life. There's nothing you can do to right. know that. So um, 
No, that's, um, again, really interesting um, transposition of things. So in the big picture, um, you are creating an awareness of what is, and then you're creating a little bit of a space, and then you're redirecting, which is all the essence of neuroplasticity. And can you just give us a, an example of how somebody might come into your office and some of the outcomes that you've seen with this? Because again, you have your style of doing what the doc project does. Again, I think the essence of the solutions going from threat to safety and unless you understand that there is threat and what the threat is, that you can't actually go to safety. In other words, you have to be aware of what is before you can change direction. So I think that responsibility factor is huge and that that anger is yours, not theirs. That's a huge starting point. But I was curious, some of the um, types of people that come to you, maybe a success story. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that in just a moment. I just want to go back to this idea of no praise, no blame. So if, if we take away the praise and blame, which means that I stop telling you about you, I, I just no longer tell you about you. That doesn't mean that I can't appreciate you, but instead of telling you that you're the best person who's ever interviewed me for a podcast, I would just say, I appreciate, I appreciate the way you do a podcast. I'm talking well, about pretty, myself. You're pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Does that still count as praise? No, I'm kidding. No, I know exactly yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, right. It, it's, it's my experience that I want to be talking about. Right. Well, what I find interesting about this is that there's a book in my process called The Way to Love by Dr. Anthony DeMello. Are you, are you familiar with Dr. DeMello's work at all by chance? I am a little bit, yes. Yeah, I mean, he says, he talks about attachment, that if something feels good, you want more. If something feels bad, you want less. And again, when you're pray and label, of course, when you pray somebody, you've labeled them. And we criticize them, you've labeled them. And once you've labeled anybody positively or negatively, you've lost awareness as to who they are because all you've done is project your view of their actions from your perspective, but you don't know who they are. You've lost exactly. awareness completely. So it's about awareness really and allowing that to happen. So again, another, another very powerful part of the process. I agree, it's very difficult. It took me a long time to figure this out that positive praise and negative criticism are two sides of the same coin. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and we, if we recognize that and we get let go of that coin, we move ourselves in a direction that makes it much easier to connect with other people, so. which is part of the conversation I want to have with you, but maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. You asked about a, an example of a, of a success story. I'll give you a, a short one. Um, of, a, a minister came in to see me and she brought the, um, the chairman of the board of the church because she and he were having conflict. Okay. And so she took quite a bit of time to talk about her experience. And he was a good listener. He's a good communicator. After he heard everything she said, he basically, he basically said, I understand your point of view and here's my point of view. And this is very common. And as he was telling her his point of view, he essentially was trying to change her, right? There was really no acceptance. And when I introduced him to the idea that she is only talking about the way she sees the world and he has no permission to change her, he, he didn't even ask if she wanted that, he had this aha moment that altered a 15-year dynamic 
where he realized she is who she is. It is how she goes through the world. And the only question I asked him was, does it work for you? Does it work for you? And he just completely let go of his agenda in that moment. Nice. Right? Yeah. And, and they continued to work together for many years since, but it's a completely different dynamic. That's fantastic. Uh, let, me give you, let me give you one other quick one, because I think this is valuable, which is my grandson. Um, my grandson used to come and spend the weekends with us when he was very young. And his mom was very um, controlling and gave him a lot of praise. So um, be before I move on, I just want to give you one more example. And this one has to do with um, how we deal with children. Uh, my wife and I have a grandson. And when we lived in Santa Fe, he used to come and spend the weekends with us. And we never praised him, right? We never praised him. And as far as I know, we never blamed him for anything. So when he would come to us and he would say, hey, I went, you know, uh, played uh, baseball today and I hit a home run. Instead of telling him he was great or he was the best athlete, we would say things like, how did that make you feel, right? or we would say, we would tell him that we're very excited for him, right? The, the, the reason I think this is an interesting story is that his mother was somebody who was very loving, praised him all the time, used it as a way to control him, which we, we use praise in that way. Right. But when he, was a little, when he was a little older, he went to therapy because he was struggling with something. And he said to the therapist that the place he felt the safest in the world was with his grandparents because he got to be himself. Right. And, and this, is, this is a 10-year-old kid. Right. And I just thought it was a great example of how we can use this language with, with anybody, but in this case with kids, to help them connect with themselves. Right. And I, I've been reading your book recently, and one of the themes is our, the necessity to get in touch with ourselves. Right. And this right. is a great way to encourage that. Right. Yeah, no, language is a huge connecting force, but also an extraordinarily powerful disconnecting force. And so no, I, I think what you're doing is just phenomenal work, really excellent. So Jake, I'm going to talk to you more in the second podcast about some of the actual things that you do and some of the techniques you have to offer. But um, can you tell us how to get a hold of your, you have a website, correct? Yes, we have a website, which is liveconscious.com. It's not consciously, it's liveconscious.com. And on there we have, I think it's about 300 articles and um, a few other things that we, that we do. And then what services do you offer? Do you, could you offer services through that website? We do. Um, we, we do online courses. Almost all of our courses are three-week long programs that we do online. And then once or twice a year, we do one of these labs like the Weirs used to do, which is eight days long. Okay. We all go somewhere and we do that with about groups of 20 people. And it's a really extraordinary way to embrace this approach. And you're actively taking on clients now? Um, a little bit, yeah. I'm, I'm doing less individual work than I used to do, um, but, but, but I do but, take on some. But still doing group work? Still doing group work. And as you know, um, you know group, group work is proving to be remarkably effective, even more effective. And this, by the way, is one of the things John Weir realized back in 1963. He stopped doing private work and he just started facilitating groups. Right, and we've seen incredibly powerful results in chronic pain with the group, group situation. It's really remarkable, so, well, good. Well, thank you very much, and I look forward to talking to you in a few minutes. Great.
I'd like to thank our guest, Jake Eagle, for being on the show today and for sharing the concepts from his Live Conscious community, which shows how to use language to empower ourselves. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.thedocjourney.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.